Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Well, we're here once again in Ephesians chapter 4, and the theme of our message this morning can be found in verse 26 and 27. The scripture reads, Be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. You know, the thought occurs to us that we are in a very angry society. I um, was thinking just recently about uh, Rod, Robert Hodgkins. Rod, Robert Hodgkins, I believe his name. Anybody familiar with him? Uh, back in 2017, he was irritated over some political events. He had in the past been convicted uh, for domestic abuse, uh, but he was irritated over some political things. And so he gathered his weapons. He drove from the Midwest all the way out to Virginia. And there was a congregation, a, a Congress, Congress, congressional baseball game. And he began to use his weapon and just sprayed that uh, field that was several congressional aides, police officers, and even uh, wounding uh, a majority whip from Congress, an individual that held that position, uh, Mr. Scalise. How many are familiar with that, 2017? Uh, how about the name Robert Card? Robert Card. If you've paid any attention to the news recently, the only information that has transcended beyond uh, the crisis in Israel is the shooting in Maine, Lewiston, Maine. And the shooter's been identified as Robert Card. He has since deceased. Uh, we're just an angry society. Um, I really struggle uh, with understanding. You say, what do you mean? Well, I just don't understand. I'd really have to hate somebody to shoot them. I mean, I mean, uh, I'd really have to hate them. And I really don't know how it would be possible uh, to engage in this level of, and it's all cited as terrorism, people that have really never done anything to you. People that, in many cases, has never done anything to anybody else. But you know what's at the heart of murder? Anger. That's what's at the heart of murder. Notice our passage again. Be ye angry and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Now I want to come back and revisit this text. But we live in an angry society. Now it's one thing I can look at the world and I can say that only unbelievers have problems with anger and wrath. And all God's people said, and then we wouldn't even need this message. I mean, because obviously, we as believers never have any trouble with anger. I mean, the last time you got angry at something and got in sin was so long ago that you can't even remember when it was or what it was. I mean, the last time your temper laid hold of you was so long ago you can't even remember it. The reality in one form or another is anger and wrath are often very common problems in the lives of believers. And as we opened up and we mentioned those individuals, it's common in the world as well. Now, I'm not to say that somehow that provides an excuse, nor am I saying that just because you're angry or full of wrath that you're going to go around shooting everybody. God forbid that would happen. If the reality is 
anger and wrath manifest in the life of a believer. And notice this passage again. Neither give place to the devil. So often when we're in a place of anger and wrath, sin can abound greatly in our life. Now, some might would say that only immature Christians ever have a problem with anger and wrath. Well, that's not in keeping with the Word of God. I think about Moses. Moses was a man, and the Scripture says, and, and according, he was the one really that we credit with pinning this under inspiration, but Moses was the meekest man in all the world, the Scripture says. And yet... At, at least two points in his ministry, he troubled himself with anger and wrath. Once, really at the early part, a much younger man, and that's what you might choke this up to. Some might look at Moses and saying this was really something, you know, that was a youthful passion, if you will. But he looked out from thence and he saw an Egyptian an Egyptian was wailing, if you will, on a Hebrew slave. And Moses, being a Hebrew, but trained and raised in the Egyptian court, saw it and became incensed. And so he killed a man. And as that fled into the desert. And you might chalk that flash of anger up and say, well, you know, that was the only time. And that happened when he was a young man. The young man, he's full of spit and vinegar and he didn't realize things. But you know what happens if you go to the end of Moses' life? He comes to a place of Horeb, is the name of the place, and there was a rock. They had been there once before. And at this rock, God told him, he said, you're to smite the rock. When you smite the rock, water will come forth. And so he had done so. And then circling back to that area sometime later, they come to the same place, and the children of Israel committing the same sin and murmuring and complaining, and they need water, and God says, Moses, speak to the rock. And yet Moses did not speak to the rock. He instead struck the rock. We might always chalk that up to him being an old man and just so frustrated. And then there's the whole matter of the breaking of the tablets. Do you remember that? And that happened about the middle of his ministry. What are you saying? I'm seeing Moses, the man that saw the hinder glory of God, was a man that had anger and wrath at times in his life. I think of another man. I believe he's a saved man, but I believe he acted so much in an ungodly fashion that we debate whether or not he was a believer or not, but that was the first king of Israel, Saul. Saul, in so many ways, could have been used of God to such a great extent it was never God's will for a son of Benjamin to sit eternally on the throne. God had already granted and willed that through Judah, but that does not mean that the course of events had to unfold as they unfolded. But I think of Saul. Saul was a man that did not come from a royal past that became king. He was from a tribe that had been nearly eradicated, and yet now it's sustained. In fact, you would even look at this, that the group of individuals in the past that tried to eradicate Saul's relatives were now subservient to Saul. I mean, that's the material by which we'd come across with, with, with great fairy tales. You know, the ugly goose becomes the coveted goose. I mean, that's the kind of stuff this is. Almost eradicated, and now you're the king of united Israel. It doesn't get better than that. Not coming from a royal lineage whatsoever. 
from the smallest of tribes and you are now pronounced the king of Israel. That's a fairy tale ending. That's like growing up. I, I, I enjoy this. They're both sides of the political spectrum. But if you listen to some politicians and you listen to some of them having grown up in single parent homes and, and having struggled in their existence, uh, some of them grew up in two parent homes where parents worked all the time and now their children through various means are sitting in places of authority. There's a little bit of that that you'd say, wow, that, that's a pretty interesting story. Well, Saul's is greater still. You know, what really Saul's life is marked by is consistent anger. He hit a point in his life where he's angry at everybody. And it manifests itself in great ways. On multiple occasions, he tried to kill David. A guy had not lifted a finger but to aid Saul. So incensed was he by the things that David did and didn't do that he kidnapped David's wife, which actually was Saul's daughter. He kidnapped her back to himself, gave her to someone else, and spent a great portion of a decade, the greater portion of a decade, chasing David around. In any case, if he could have found him, he'd have killed him in the most barbaric of methods. So incensed was Saul that he would take and bring his host into the city of, of, uh, of the, uh, the priest and then commanded, because the priest had helped David, he would command that all the priests be killed, and none of his loyal followers would do so. So he contracted out to a foreign special force group by the name of Dog, and he killed them all. The men, the young men, and the children. Why? At the command of Saul, of course. And at the end of his life, incensed by anger and self-pity, and vitriolic type wrath, Saul starts giving military commands. He starts giving commands to his militaries that make no logistical or tactical sense whatsoever. They're about to go into a field of battle and he makes them all fast an indefinite period of time. And then he says, if any man eats, he dies. Well, his right-hand man and arguably his most loyal man had been his son. And Jonathan wasn't there for it. And Jonathan returns and was hungry and ate, and the whole host sees it, and it creates an uproar. And nothing greatly is done about it because it would be shortly after time later in that very battle that Jonathan and Saul would meet their end. That's the kind of man Saul was. I'm not talking about the New Testament Saul that we know as Paul the Apostle. I'm talking about the first king of Old Testament Israel. Ravished by anger. The list does not stop there. There are others that we can follow throughout scriptures. It is a common problem in the life of humanity and also, as we'll find this morning, in the lives of Christians. In fact, it is probably one of the most struggled with sins. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told to lay aside every weight that so easily doth beset us and run the race with patience. Besetting sins, weights, lay aside. To lay aside has the idea of casting off and putting away. The weight has the idea of a mass or burden that creates hindrance. And in context with our run and besetting has the idea of it ensnares us. And though, of course, the scripture in Hebrews is talking about the legalistic system of Judaism and ultimately unbelief, it can be aptly applied to what anger does in the lives of many Christians. It burdens us. It prevents us. It clouds our judgment, it clouds our mind, it distorts our heart. And the ultimate end is it prevents us 
from accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish in our life and through His power. It is very common sin. The reality is, abounding anger not only impacts us, but it also impacts all that are around us. And the scriptures are full of many warnings regarding it. Look, if you will, in Matthew. Hold your place here in Ephesians. Put that marker in there and turn over to Ephesians, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5, the opening verses, Sermon on the Mount, the Lord speaking to this multitude. Some are believers, some are unbelievers. Uh, probably, I would venture to say, most of them were unbelievers. And he's giving the gospel to them. But one of the great problems with the Jewish multitude that gathered around is they had ascribed beliefs in things that were extra biblical. They had taken the commandments of God and adjudicated them to their own meaning. They had changed what God said in their mind. And in Matthew chapter 5, the Lord is going to use a phrase, I don't know, at least a half a dozen times, and he'll put it in this sense, you have heard, it has been said. And he's reflecting back to what the scripture said, and then he's given the meaning of what it means, and oftentimes the meaning of what it means is not their meaning at all. Notice, if you will, in verse 21, and he's talking about how the Pharisees looked at the law. And the Pharisees looked at the law in one sense, and God said in the previous verse uh, that if your righteousness shall not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he begins in verse 20, 21, Ye have heard it said, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. All right, I look at that, that command in Exodus chapter 20, Thou shalt not kill. If I kill, I'm going to be judged. Genesis chapter 9, I could even uh, be the, be the uh, uh, consequence of said murder, could be that of capital punishment. By man's hand, I would die. Notice what the Lord said in verse 22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. Let me put it in this sense. God equivalated anger with murder. This is what he did. He sat there and he said the murder, if you're angry without a cause, you're in danger of the judgment. In fact, in the next few verses, we're here, so we might as well point this out. He said, whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, and that's a slanderous word. It has the idea of slandering someone. Specifically, it means worthless, something along that line. That if I was to look at the creation, a brother, be that in a physical sense or be that in a political sense, brother, meaning of the same nation, and I was to begin to defame them, that's the slander of how worthless they were. Or perhaps it's a diabolical criticism of the physical characteristics or of the mental aptitude that they have. The Lord said, that's what this idea of rocket is. You shall be in danger of the council. You're going to have to stand in the place of not eternal judgment, like murder and anger, but rather in front of a judge. By the way, that's similar today still. He said, but whosoever shall say, thou fool... And he's not talking about a mental comprehension. He's also not talking about foolishness. He's talking about one and accusing a brother that a brother is without the knowledge of God. Hence the last phrase there, the danger of hellfire. 
But our intent is verse 22. God compared anger to murder. This is a powerful sentiment that the Lord's making. Hold your place here in Matthew because we'll visit it in just a moment. And I want you to turn over to Proverbs. While you're turning to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 14. I remind you of the 37th Psalm. The scripture says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Note the emphasis. Anger, cease from it. Wrath, forsake it. Notice chapter 14 and verse 29. Now there's several here. I think I've got about a half a dozen. And I tried to put them in chronological order so we can move from chapter 14 forward down towards chapter 30. But notice you will in chapter 14 and verse 29. He that is slow to wrath is of what? Great understanding. But he that is hasty of spirit does what? Exalted folly. Look down chapter 15 and verse 18. A wrathful man, what does he do? Isn't that so true? Now you, I'm not asking for you to raise your hand or condemn yourself. I, I know we're all condemned already. Have you ever been angry? What is the natural response of anger projected? Anger received. Notice what he says there. A wrathful man stirreth up strife. An idea of strife is contention. But he that is slow to anger appeases, pacifies, reduces strife. Look at chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 32. He that is slow to anger is better than the what? Mighty. By inference, that word mighty, it has with it the idea of a, uh, of a mighty, victorious warrior. That's what he's saying. If you are slow to anger, in the context, it's better than a mighty man. He that ruleth his spirit, by contrast, is greater than he that taketh a city. There's a lot of rarity there, isn't it? A lot of rarity. Notice chapter 21. Looking well in verse number 19. So far it's been he, 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 he. He that is slow to wrath. He is quick to anger. So is that to indicate that she's never have anger? Look at chapter 21 and verse 19. This is going to be a Mother's Day text. It is better. That was a joke. If you're a visitor, that was a joke. Chapter 21 and verse 19. It's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Anger is no respecter of persons. Look at chapter 22 and verse 24. This is one to consider. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not. Why? Well, what was the difference between Saul and Moses? Moses struggled at times. Saul was dominated by that idea, if you want a description, you look at the life of Saul, Saul was a furious man. And the end of that man was destruction. In fact, Saul, through his illegitimate passions and godless actions, wound up destroying his own household. I wonder, as many of the Proverbs are written by Solomon, 
I wonder if there was a calm reflection upon the life of the previous, the, the previous administration to David, thinking about Saul's life. Look at the one in chapter 25. Chapter 25, verse 23. This is a true, it's a proverb, it's a truthful maxim. The north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance a backbiting tongue. Sounds like there's a positive to anger, doesn't it? You know, I, you've probably had this experience, but a child can walk in, be backbiting, and then see dad's face, and all of a sudden... Instead of backbiting, they'll bite their tongue. You ever had an experience like that? That's what he's talking about. He's not actually talking that dad or mom is angry. It's just their countenance is very stern. Notice, if you will, chapter 27. Two more. Chapter 27 and verse 4. Wrath is cruel. Anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? One more, chapter 29, verse 22. An angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgressions. It would do us well to consider this verse for a moment the furious man aboundeth in transgression. But before we get there, I think we've got to consider for a manner or for a moment how anger is seen throughout the scriptures. The reality is there are two types of anger that exist in the scriptures. One we'll call a righteous anger. And that's the anger that you see from God. Yet, that righteous anger can, though extremely rare, be exhibited in the life of a godly individual as well. In fact, over in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the vehement attitude of the Corinthians. And usually we equate the word vehement with being some type of outcry of anger. But the context of the, passion, uh, of the verse deals with their passion towards godliness. They were angry at their past sins, angry of their failures to temptation, and had a dedicated vehement desire to pursue godliness in their own life. You would say, in a sense, that they experienced a righteous anger towards certain temptations and sins in their life. That would be a righteous anger. This righteous anger is an indignation for holy reasons. It is to be consumed with a desire for God's righteousness or His will or His honor or you might even say in defense of His own reputation. This is the type of anger that God has. In Mark chapter 11, it was the type of anger that uh, He showcased when He was cleaning, uh, cleansing the temple. In John chapter 2, the disciples declared a passage of the Old Testament prophesying that the Lord Jesus would do so. 
because he had commanded that they would not make his father's house a house of merchandise. And the disciples said, they remembered the Old Testament where the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. When God drave out the money changers, he did so with a righteous indignation. He did so with a holy anger. Why? He was zealous for God and God's will and God's reputation. He was zealous for God's work. Now, it seems that it need not be said, but it's worth saying that those that were engaged in such, those hirelings, those profiteers, were in direct opposition to God's word in the first place. I think of Psalm 7. There's a powerful phrase, not one we looked at, but you can find it there in Psalm 7 and verse 11. God judges the righteous. Here's the phrase. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Now, if we do not make a distinction between righteous judgment and unrighteous, I'm sorry, righteous anger and unrighteous anger, then we could make the assumption that God's anger is also like our anger. But in case we need to be reminded, and we often do, God's not like you. God's certainly not like me. I am called to be like him. I am not naturally like him. His anger is holy. His anger is just. He's the only one in the history of all the world that will ever make war righteously. There'll be no one else, even with the greatest attempt, that can truly say that from the beginning to the end of any misery of conflict, God is righteous altogether. And so his anger is such. It is a righteous anger. And there's the possibility, according to Ephesians chapter 4, that believers can have that similar type anger, be ye angry and sin not. I would submit to you that old, tested, and tried uh, motto that the only way to be angry and not in sin is to be angry at sin. But there is in the scriptures a righteous anger. However, the most common for, uh, form of anger is of the sort of unrighteous anger. It's most common. In fact, you might even say it's natural. And this anger, look at Ephesians chapter 4, and it's mentioned several times here, but it can be seen, unrighteous anger, in two sorts. Two forms, or two expressions, if you will. Notice verse 26 again. Be ye angry, and you circle that word anger. Sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Circle that word. Then drop your eyes down to verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath, circle that word, and anger clamor and evil speaking be put away with you with all malice. You could even circle that word. Here in these passages we read a moment ago, twice God delineates between wrath and anger. Now in our contextual use, if we were to research a thesaurus and we'd look up anger, wrath would be included in anger under the W's. If we looked up wrath and we wanted to know an A word, out of the thesaurus, do you remember the thesauruses? You know, they're fun. Uh, you know, you looked up wrath and you said, I want a word that starts with A, often would come forth, angry or anger or something like that. But they are different. They're very kin to each other. 
but they're different. And they're both unrighteous in their action. Let me draw something of a delineation. Wrath, wrath in essence is the idea of a deep-seated disdain. You might even put this, put this in your mind. If you think of wrath, think of a volcano. You got a volcano in your mind? When a volcano erupts, what happens? It explodes. And that magma and lava comes out in a spewing fashion. The idea of wrath can be seen in that. Wrath has the idea of something so deep-seated that it builds up and then finally explodes. Therefore, wrath can often be vented, you might would say. Wrath has that embodiment of what you see so often of slamming things and throwing things and violent speech and physical abuse, and abusive speech, yelling, screaming, all of those things would be embodiment of wrath. Now let me note back here the passage. Notice how God does not say, be wrathful and sin not. Do you notice that in the text? He says, be ye what? They're different. I don't think it's possible to have godly wrath. Now, God is righteous in his wrath. But the very context of it being deep-seated, that explosiveness, I don't think there's any such thing as a godly wrath. There can be a godly anger, though. And that brings us to this. Anger has the idea of a passion. Thereby, we would say of anger that it is burning. It simmers. It seethes. And you might would witness anger in frustration, irritation, moodiness, glaring and staring, huffing and puffing. And I ran out of synonyms here. Evil thoughts. I don't know what to put with it. That's that seething idea. It's not explosive in nature, but nonetheless damaging. And you can look at those, and you can think of the frustrations and irritations. You can think of the moodiness, the glaring, the staring, the huffing, the puffing. And do you see how sin can accompany each one of those? Anger. Slow burning. Wrath. Deep-seated explosiveness. Colossians chapter 3, we're admonished. But now ye also put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice. Malice has the idea of blaspheming or blasphemous railing. Filthy communication out of your mouth, Colossians chapter 3. So that's the sort between wrath and anger. Well, that leads us to another question quickly. Where's the source? Where does anger come from? You know, we mentioned those individuals at the onset, and certainly that was wrath being exposed in their life from deep-seated misery and bitterness, and certainly there was anger. Do you know that once they were children? At one time, the most evil person was a child. Just like every one of us were once children.
And so psychologists will look at this and say, where did this come from? And they'll begin analyzing that. And they'll look back on it, Freudian-based philosophies at the very least, will ultimately come to the general conclusion that it was their parents' fault. That the failure of the child was at the neglect or the dislove or various things of the parents, and that's where that wrath came from. Some will look at it and say, well, that might not be it, because you can have a great family life, you can have parents that love you, and you can be a miserable, hating, wrathful person. And they'll say, ah, it's the culture that they were immersed in. And of course, that list goes on and on and on. But at the end of the day, anger and wrath, friend, is no respecter of persons. It happens to people that politically identify as Democrats and politically identify as Republicans. It's no respecter of demographics. It happens to white people, and it happens to black people, it happens to Latino folks, it's no respecter of person. Anger is no respect of age either. Young people can be angry. Now their wrath may not follow out suit in the same way an adult is, but adults not without the ability to have wrath and anger. In fact, years ago, I knew a man. He's passed on. He's in heaven now. This man was one of the kindest men that I had ever met on, in my life. He was kind, giving, that's what I knew of the man. I'd never seen him do an evil thing. I'd never heard him say an evil thing. Nothing like that in all my time I spent with him. In fact, I felt ashamed at times visiting his house because of how gracious he was. If you were a guest in his house, you could do no wrong. If you sat down in a wrong chair, meaning his chair, you would never know about it. If he was inconvenienced because you were his guest, you'd never hear about it. You'd never know. But my dad and I visited him at once, and he needed help. It seems that one of the back bedrooms, the doorknob, was sticking, and he, he wanted to change it. And yet in his advanced years, he just could not make it happen. So he asked my dad and I to help him with it. My dad went out there, and my dad known this guy for years, and I don't know all that ensued, but in a matter of seconds, this old man exploded all over my dad. And I remember standing there saying, this is like a different person. That sucked me so far in my mind he would pass on a few years later. In between that, boy, he's remorseful. He, what do you blame that on? Well, where does sin come from? Look, look over in Galatians chapter 5. Did I have you turn there? You're in Ephesians. Turn back to epistles. Philippians, Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Cool. I mean, if you're really going to deal with sin, if you're really going to deal rather with anger and wrath, regardless of you being an old man or a young man or a middle-aged man, a man full of vinegar and spit, or a man full of vinegar, or a man that's just emptied of life, where do you begin with what is the source of anger? Well, God has not been quiet on this matter. Look in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 19. This is so important that if you write in your Bibles, I would strongly encourage you to underline this. I'd encourage you to highlight it. If you put sticky notes, you put a sticky note. You do whatever you need because this is the key that opens up the beginning of correction that the Holy Spirit of God can do in your life in so many ways. And if you fail in this key, you'll never correct it. Notice here. 
Now the works of the flesh are manifest, manifest, made apparent. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness. Go to verse 20. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance. It has the idea of debate, emulations. That's jealous and zealous arguments. There's our word next, isn't it? Wrath. Strife. Strife has the idea of factions that debate angrily their cause. Seditions, divisions, heresies, sext. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, this is carousal, and such like. So I ask a question, where's anger and wrath from? I mentioned earlier those two fellows we mentioned, they were children once. The meanest, orneriest person that you've ever met in your life was a child at one time. The ultimate place in which this sin was birthed was a direct result of their heart. You see, your sin nature and my sin nature was inherited from your parents, but it has been embraced by your actions. Romans 5 talks about this. Sin into the world, and death entered upon all men. Why? For all have sinned. That's where anger comes from. Yes, you inherited a sin nature, a proclivity to evil. But guess what you did in your life? You embraced that evil. Our hearts, the scripture says in Jeremiah, are deceitfully wicked. Who can know them? And given this is the starting point, the habits of sin are easily, easily embraced despite their crushing burdens. In Titus, Paul relates to him as he's going to a mostly Gentile island to preach the gospel. He says to him, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, and disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. The Gospel of Matthew, the Lord to His disciples says, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, and blasphemy. So where's the root problem of anger and wrath? It isn't an environmental issue. It is not a parental issue. It is not an experiential issue. It's not a health issue. You know what it is? It's a heart issue. It comes from our heart. Now, I'm not talking about your cardiac muscle. I'm talking about that inward you. Notice the third thing. We've looked at the sort and we've looked at the source. Look at the sentence of anger. Anger does not exist by itself. It's accompanied by other things. Let me give you, I think I have six things here. You could expand this, but let me give you six things. And I want to move quickly here because I want to get to my final fault. The sentence of anger. Anger involves the thoughts.
Anger involves the thoughts. You're in Galatians. Flip up over to Ephesians chapter 4. That market passage. I, I told you I want to spend just a few moments here. Several of these other ones, I'll give you the reference and I'll, I'll read them for you. This I say, therefore, in verse 17 of chapter 4, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Where? How do they walk? What is the identifying portion of an unbeliever? That's what he's talking about when he's talking about Gentiles in this context. He's not just talking about non-Jewish. He's talking about unbelievers. And he's speaking of, of, if you will, you could call it a description of an unbeliever. Verse 17, they walk in the vanity of their minds. Futility of thought. You want to know why so much anger and hate and malice exist within the plethora of the world system? Why you can hear about it and read about it in your newspapers and read about it online and watch about it on YouTube videos? You want to know why that anger is there? Futility of thought. Futility of thought. Unregenerated man seethes in anger because he cannot recognize the sovereignty of an almighty God. Anger involves the thoughts. That's why in Philippians chapter 4, it's so important for a believer to whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, there's several of them there. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. That's what sets the regenerate man apart from the unregenerate man. He has not the vanity of his mind. He has the renewing of his inner man. I'm not simply talking about living the best you in your mind. I'm talking about conforming to the image of God and considering Christ at every place in life. When you and I as believers succumb to the temptation, it, we would be well secured at that moment to consider who we are. Anger is a choice. And yet, it may have been the path taken so often in our life that it becomes the response, not singularly the choice. What do you mean? You can live a life so long that anger becomes you. And that you naturally move to that end. It's almost like it's almost like a rut in a driveway. I have two ruts in my driveway. And what has happened, it has been the common place I naturally pulled a vehicle. And whoever owned a house before me, the natural place they did. And now just everything, it looks off center if you don't park in the ruts. The essence I'm trying to say is anger involves our thoughts. And when we have went years without thinking about the things of God consistently in this manner, it just becomes our natural response. Notice number two, anger often indicates our goals. If you want to know what you want in life, look at what makes you angry. Now I think back about my story with the older man. I thought about that for a number of years. And I believe I've got the answer. He didn't want help with the doorknob. That's what the problem was. He didn't want help with the doorknob. You know what he wanted to do? 
He wanted to do it himself. I guess he was about 77 then. You know what he did the previous 60 years? You think he was inviting people over to do routine maintenance? No. But the eyes could not see like they used to. The hands had lost that nimbleness. The feet had lost the sureness. If he bent over too long, he'd fall over. You know why the anger occurred in his life? His goals had been interrupted. I submit to you that can be a source of anger. Anger will often, often highlight what you really want. Anger points in the direction, and many times the wrong direction in life. When whatever is wanted goes unfulfilled or unrealized, what happens? Anger commences. James chapter 4, 1 through 3, Whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your own lust? You lust and you have not. Anger can indicate goals. Now that is not what anger is for. I'm simply saying here that a lot of times failure to achieve certain things in our life produces anger. And I can tell you a number of stories. I can tell you a fellow about the name of Mr. Todd. He died when I was a kid. I did not like this man. He was a double amputee and he was a stroke. He had suffered a stroke. And so his left hand had all that had been operative for years. He could barely speak. He could not walk, double amputee, and his right arm barely worked. And I'd go over to visit him with my dad and we'd shake hands. And every time I hated it, he would grab my hand and squeeze it till I was about in tears. This happened like over seconds. My dad would tell me, don't shake his hand. But as soon as my dad turned around, this guy would reach out that left hand. And I naturally, intelligence, you know, would grab it and he'd about break it. I mean, I'd about be in tears and his laughter. <laughs> That's what he would do. Remember like his yesterday. He's a mean, ornery cuss. You know what he wanted? More life. More health. Number three, anger interrupts God's will. Anger never accomplishes anything of eternal value. This is true in marriages. Marital problems, if anger is how you solve things, I promise you before the God of all heaven, anger will help your marriage. If that's your form of child rearing, it ain't much child rearing. It won't accomplish anything. Now, I understand as a, a parent, you get passionate about things. And to the outside world, that passion might look like it's some evil anger. But I imagine any good parent seeing their child cross the street in front of a bunch of cars wouldn't quietly be having a conversation with said child. So I understand that there's a level of passion. I'm not talking necessarily about that. But if your idea of child rearing is screaming and yelling all the time, you're not child rearing. I don't know, you wouldn't even raise your dog that way. Anger interrupts God's will. It doesn't accomplish anything of eternal value. If we're going to be victorious, we must accept that anger is sinful and therefore it directs us in an ungodly path or action. James 1.20, a verse you should write down. We don't have time to turn there, but... Ready? 
the wrath of man worketh not the dissect it, bisect it. It means it all. Your anger and wrath do not accomplish the will of God. Proverbs 11 says, The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. The fourth thing about anger, as we consider its sentence, anger invites a loss of control. Anger is often the result of failing to subdue other areas of self-control in our life, be it our words, be it our minds, be it our desires. Proverbs 17, he that spareth, he that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. We don't have time to turn there either. Proverbs 17, you should cross-reference it with Daniel chapter 6 and verse 3. Daniel 6 and verse 3 is about this man, Daniel, who had been made a slave in Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 6, he had uh, already finished with Babylon and now been promoted to the next kingdom. And he was set over three presidents and there was all these governors under them. And the scripture says of Daniel, a man that would not die in his native land, a man that had been snatched from his family as a youth, a man that had endured slavery and abuse. Early on, one of the first mentions, they're going to force feed him stuff that he could not eat. The second mention of Daniel is that if the sorcerer, who he was not aligned to, could not come up with the interpretation of the dream, then Daniel was going to be executed as well. This is the abuse that Daniel had constantly endured. In old age, uh, they drag him out to come and interpret a dream, and he does so. He had been forgotten for years. This guy is maligned, abused, and in Daniel chapter 6, it says it all about him. He's of an excellent spirit. He never responded with anger and wrath. What a challenge. Anger invites the loss of control. Proverbs 25, Go not forth hastily to strive, lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof, when thy neighbor hath put thee to shame. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool uttereth his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, Add to your faith knowledge, and to knowledge temperance. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Anger, anger invites the loss of control. Number five, anger includes other evil sins. It's easy to see that anger can invite other sins. Sins like a critical spirit, withdrawal, isolation, slander, lying, vengeance, self-pity, discouragement, depression. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 22 an angry man stirreth up strife, and a foolish man, or a furious man rather, aboundeth in transgression. You're in Philippians chapter 4, and you can consider some of these other sins that are accompanied with anger as we give place to the devil. We can see there that there can be theft, there can be corrupt communication, there can be lying, and every evil work. Anger includes, anger is very social, isn't it? It occlude and invite any other sin to accompany on its journey of devastation. And finally, number six, the sentence of anger. Anger increases in other areas and with other sins. It not only includes them, but you'll start in anger and it can build upon those. If not dealt with, anger will grow. Anger, particularly when our goals are interrupted, will produce bitterness. And by the way, that fellow from the Midwest that shot up, you know what he was upset about. The elections didn't go his way. I mean, this is a guy that meditated on this anger so long that he become bitter. He allowed that anger to metastasize. 
He was full of malice and evil hatred towards anyone that had never done anything to harm him. You want to know where hate comes from? A source, not the, but a source of depression that exists. Manipulative control. And even murder and suicide in certain cases. All lead themselves to a place where anger will cause an increase in other sins. Listen to what the Lord told Ezekiel. He said, therefore, I judge you, O house of Israel. Every, every, every man on his own way, saith the Lord God, repent and turn yourselves from all your transgression, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Hosea 8 and verse 7 talks about those that had sowed the wind and that would surely reap the whirlwind. That's what anger does. Well, our time's up. But I feel it necessary to finish this last point. So if you'll bear with me, I want to talk just a moment about its subjugation. In fact, likely next week is where I'll finish this portion. So I just want to highlight it. I don't want you to leave this morning if you have struggled with the common sin of anger and wrath and think there's no hope. Friend, if you're alive and you have the indwelling of the Spirit of God, there is hope. Friend, if you're alive, I love the writing in Ecclesiastes. He talks about a living dog is better than a dead lion. You say, what does that mean? If you're alive, there's always hope. At the very least, if you're here this morning, and even if you know not Christ, and deep within you know that malice and anger and bitterness and wrath has laid hold on you and you cannot shake it, it's a ruination, my friend, then you need to experience the great love of Jesus Christ, that He commended His love towards you and that while you were yet a sinner, He died for you. Yes, He died for you as you are right now. And his great desire in this life is for you to be more like him. And that's the calling to every believer as well. Victory can be had. Change can occur despite the habits that so often make it difficult because we've embraced certain sin. Victory can be had. You know why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. I'll say it again because three times it goes with the Trinity. God is faithful. Think of 1 John. If we confess our sin, He is faithful. He is faithful. That's why there's hope. Oh, you and I find ourselves unfaithful sometimes. You and I find ourselves errant sometimes. You and I find ourselves fully disgusted with all that we are, but God is faithful. He has commended His love towards us. He has provided a way of salvation, and He will see it until the day of Jesus Christ in the life of His believers. He will complete that work. He is faithful. That's a reason for hope. And yet I'll move beyond that and I'll say not only is He faithful, but God has provided all the means necessary. That's why we can have hope. It's one thing to just say he's faithful, but it's another thing that not only is he faithful, but he's given me the path that I can chart my life toward to have victory through him. In fact, he's even given me the power. Be ye strong in the power of his might. Ephesians chapter 6 and number 10. Ephesians chapter 2 said that you might know what the exceeding great power toward justice be found in Jesus Christ. I paraphrase. He's provided all that we need. 
And on top of all the power that he's given, there are clear-cut things that you and I can embrace from the Word of God, truths that we can embrace from the Word of God that can allow us to have victory. The requirement for the believer is simply this. We must follow. What is the sin that does so easily beset you? What is that weight that weighs you down? No wonder Hebrews, let us lay aside. Cast off. My friend, as you're a believer this morning, the choice you have to make in confronting this common sin of anger and wrath is not what you need to do. That's not the question. The question is whether you're going to lay it off or keep it on. It's that simple. What do you want to be clothed in? The goodness of self or the greatness of God? That's the question for believers. What do you want to resemble? A good man or a great God? And if the latter, which is the answer, is your pursuit today, then you must walk according to the Spirit. You must develop a deep abiding relationship with the Spirit of God. My friend, if you're here this morning and you know not Jesus Christ, your first step is not to do. Your first step is to receive. To confess Him and receive Him as your Savior. The psalmist says in the 139th Psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my faults and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. I stand to our feet. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time, 